to the extent that is the American Bar Association Business Law Section's podcast series. Our podcasts provide general information. They aren't a substitute for legal advice from a licensed professional. We offer both standalone and serial podcasts on a variety of topics and welcome your feedback and suggestions at ababusinesslaw.americanbar.org. We hope you enjoy your selection. Welcome to this week's American Bar Association's Cyber and Privacy Podcast, The New Frontier, in affiliation with the Thomas R. Klein School of Law at Drexel University. This is your host, Jordan Fisher, and I am very excited to welcome this week's guest, Jason Tache. Jason, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me, Jordan. Can you go ahead and introduce yourself to the audience and what you're currently working on? Sure. Uh, I'm currently a consultant at the World Bank focused on access to justice and technology, as well as I'm the editor and founder of the Justice Tech Download, a weekly newsletter on all things justice tech. That's a really interesting space, this dynamic, this convergence of justice and technology. And I want to start really broadly with, from your perspective, what has been the main impact or, frankly, impacts um, of technology on our justice systems? It's a very loaded question, I feel. (laughs) Yeah, uh, yeah, and that covers a lot. and we don't have enough time to cover everything. But I think for the most part, if we're talking super broadly, what we see is largely a slow but steady digitization of existing processes. So we think about e-filing, we think about video conferencing as adopted uh, most strongly during the pandemic, uh, or even just putting digital, uh, digitizing inf- information and putting it online for people to access. These are kind of the biggest types of projects that we've seen across jurisdictions in the U.S. Which you could almost say is very similar to what's going on in the economy, right? Or business generally, right? What's happening in the justice system is is no different than what's happening in the world generally of this digitization. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, you see increased use of data as well, and, and that's starting from a super low bar in the justice system, courts and Uh, prosecutors and public defenders legal aid, they have been slower to adopt these types of technologies that allow us to collect this type of data. Uh, And so we're seeing that as well. We're seeing a higher demand uh, for data, which that demand is probably outstripping the collection uh, and use of data currently in the justice system. Uh, But hopefully that's that's changing as uh, people begin to update their case management systems, as well as just think through the data that they already have and, and digitizing it. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, what do you see as the potential biggest risks or challenges that technology could create for ensuring effective and fair justice? Yeah, and this kind of ties back to your last question is mm-hmm. how we're seeing the trends in the justice system as we see kind of trends in society at large. And the trends we see in society at large in the United States, at least, is that technology exacerbates existing power dynamics and usually not for the better. There was this big piece in the New York Times this week about recent research coming out of MIT that basically found that tech is exacerbating the wealth disparities within the United States. Uh, Similarly, we look at the justice system, especially the criminal justice system and technology exacerbates the power dynamics between the state and those uh, accused of crimes, for example. And there's plenty of examples 
like this, whether it's the inability for defendants to interrogate the algorithms that are saying that they need to be held pre-trial or that their DNA looks like the DNA from a crime scene uh, is just one example. There's other instances where privacy laws around the country or, or privacy use statements by companies allow law enforcement access uh, to data during their investigations, but the same type of access is not extended to defendant investigators, which is, creates a huge imbalance and exacerbates an imbalance that already existed in the justice system. So it's examples like these that are really doubling down, at least in the criminal justice system, uh, the, those imbalances between the state and those accused of crimes. Yeah, it's actually it's it's interesting. I was watching um, a documentary, Coded Bias. I don't know if you've had an opportunity to, to listen to watch that. It's on Netflix, um, and it really emphasized that technology can sometimes be really beneficial for certain socioeconomic um, statuses for for sort of continuing to sort of develop those 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 imbalances as you as you highlight. But then it might take a advantage and sort of leverage data from different economic areas to sort of grow and and create um, its databases. And so it's actually helping and hurting different uh, areas of society at the same time, which is a really interesting because it's like what you said, it's continuing this sort of imbalance and and those injustices that might already be pre existing in our systems. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Uh, in coded bias, along with a lot of the other similar research about uh, racial class and gender bias in these technologies indicates that, you know, as a lot of people like to make the argument that technology is going to be race neutral, for example, that in fact, the data that's being coded into these programs, whether it's predictive policing programs, which helps uh, distribute police in a particular jurisdiction, or if it's facial recognition, like you mentioned, uh, the data that it's being built off of is going to have a bias built into it. Like none of this stuff is neutral. Uh, and so really what we're doing is we're hard coding those biases now in these new technologies and doubling down on these uh, disproportionate contacts with uh, different minority groups or uh, just reinforcing the problems that we already had as opposed to ameliorating them, which I think was the initial promise of a lot of these technologies. And it's even beyond the data. I I had a personal awakening throughout the pandemic because I think it highlighted some um, challenges around technology and justice with how privileged I am to have easy, readily accessible internet. So even just mm -hmm. basic things like internet and a computer or a device to log onto the internet, as more and more of our justice systems move towards digitization, we don't even necessarily, uh, we can't assume that people have access to the hardware and the internet to even access those. And that was something for me personally that I really became much more aware of because people couldn't go to public libraries or public spaces or coffee shops and they don't have internet at home. And I think that's something that's really important to recognize that what we might take for advantage is really something that for others is, is not even reachable. No, I think that's exactly right. So the digital divide is what you're referring to, this idea that there's haves and have nots within the digital economy, and that's 100% correct. But I think it even goes further than that. Because if like, for example, if we look at the access to justice gap in the United States, and this is the idea that people are not able to receive uh, the either the service or the outcome that they're they should have a right to within the justice system, whether they can't afford it, they don't know that the legal problem they have is a is a legal problem or has legal recourse, things like that is what makes up the justice gap. But the digital divide, so those people that don't have hardware and don't have internet, is smaller 
than the justice gap itself. If we think about civil court cases, about three and four cases, at least one party is unrepresented uh, in civil cases around the United States. But a lot of those people would also have the internet. So there is this weird thing that's happening now where I think we need to expand how we think about the digital divide because it's not just going to be connectivity issues because there's a lot of people that have connectivity that can't get justice in the United States. Mm -hmm. So as these things are digitizing, what we need to be thinking about is not just do they have hardware, do they have access to the internet, but also like service design is a part of the digital divide. Are we building these tools, whether it's courts or companies or nonprofits that are meant to help bridge this gap? Are we doing it in a way that meets the user's literacy uh, standards or their technology proficiency standards? Are we making the, these tools confusing so that even if they are online and people do have access to it, that people can't navigate them in a way that gets them a meaningful recourse? And so I think that when we talk about the digital divide, we totally need to be thinking about hardware and internet, but we also need to be thinking about service design and, and who, in fact, we're building for and how. That's a great point. And I think that leads into some of your work that you're doing on justice as a platform. Um, so I don't know if you could just sort of give some, you know, understanding to our listeners of what exactly is that and what are you sort of, what are your goals with that idea? Yeah. So the idea came out of some work I was doing for the World Bank. And I recently published that work in the MIT computational law report. And the idea was, is that I needed to create a survey, a global survey of justice technologies. Uh, and that could be anything from CMS systems, case management systems used by courts, uh, identification systems to log into online uh, court or prosecutorial or legal aid services uh, to services themselves. So whether it's collecting legal information or giving legal advice online using chatbots, for example, um, it was meant to create um, a document that captured all of these, this whole ecosystem of technology. And the thing that I wanted to point out was that all of these technologies exist within a larger ecosystem. And previously, kind of where the literature was at was that it was only looking at discrete projects, talking about uh, a e-filing project in Ukraine or talking about a video conferencing project in, in Bhutan. And my hope was to be able to pull together all these things and talk about the connective tissue that exists between all of these projects that really determine whether or not these projects are going to be successful or not. So to like take a step back then and think about what a platform is, is like courts, for example, are like the original platform, uh, a platform being merely a conduit or an intermediary between a user and some type of service or information or product. So Facebook, Google, uh, uh, TikToks, editing, eBay, these are all versions of digital platforms that we're all really uh, affiliate, well affiliated with at this point. And I'm trying to make the point that the courts are the same thing. The justice system is the same thing. On one side, you have the citizens. Uh, in the middle, you have the justice agency. And on the other side, you have information like judgments or regulations and laws. And you have services like conflict resolution or, or criminal punishment. And so in a moment where we're watching the rapid digitization of these agencies, especially here in the United States, but also abroad, it's important for us to realize that we can't just look at these technologies as discrete projects that exist on their own. There's these interdependent layers that make them function. And currently, that's not where we're at. We're not thinking about building this from the foundation up. We're kind of just throwing stuff at the wall to see what sticks. And my hope of talking about justice as a platform is to create a more holistic way 
to view the full stack of technology within the justice system, to understand that it's not just going to be one-off projects that are going to get us out of the justice gap or going to help us decarcerate. It's going to be about thinking about it as an ecosystem. And that's what I hoped to do with this particular framework. I think it's really helpful to take that global step back because I feel like with technology or the use of technology in the practice of law generally, but then also in this sort of the examples that you you have discussed, really we've been sort of fixing things with a technology solution or trying to spin up a technology solution to meet sort of pandemic needs or whatever it might be. But I really like the idea of stepping back and really thinking holistically about how could we leverage the good of technology to fill those gaps that we've identified and really you know, a, attempt to provide justice to more individuals and access to those resources. Is there anything, Jason, in your research that surprised you, that, that you came across that really surprised you um, uh, and either hopefully or maybe negatively, right? It could be positive or negative, but I'm just curious to see if anything came out of that research that was interesting to you. Yeah, so to, to kind of break down the, the platform idea, I, I break it into four constituent parts uh, to try to make sense of what types of projects are out there. And kind of the base layer is the data level for all technology that's going to be your foundation. And this is structured and unstructured data. And there's some projects happening out there to help standardize this process, to make deletion easier. There's an interesting sealing, automated sealing process now in Pennsylvania, for example, that's really interesting. Um, but then you get to the next two layers, and this is what I thought was uh, surprised at how anemic it is. So the first is the trust and consent layer, and this is cybersecurity. This is uh, privacy protocols to make sure that people's uh, non-public court information doesn't become public, and as well as like the common technology layer, as I call it. And these are kind of the the, the more boring, non-sexy tech <laughs> applications that you'll see in in courts and. Uh, government agencies around the world. And that's things like uh, case management systems, uh, as well as like identification and payment platforms, things like that, things that are like the glue that hold all these things together and make them function, but are not the things we think about. And we think of like exciting projects. And in both cases, um, there's a lack of interest and a lack of investment, both from the, I'd say the private sector and the public sector in that space. And I think that's troubling, especially because courts are being targeted more and more by ransomware attacks, for example. So cybersecurity needs to be increasingly uh, an issue for them. But then as well, on the privacy side, we have, especially during the pandemic now, where you know there used to be some level of privacy by the fact that courts were open and they were public, but you had to physically go to a courtroom to watch someone's eviction hearing, for example. Now, at a click of a button, you can be in any courtroom around the world uh, and watch whatever hearing that you want to watch. This obviously changes uh, our sense of privacy within what was functionally a public, uh, but still kind of private setting uh, in a courtroom. Uh, and it completely turns that on its head. And at large, like this is not a discussion that's happening in the courts. And I think there's going to be this, there is this tension that I think is going to become more and more pronounced as we continue to move forward with the use of these technologies between our expectations of open court and the privacy of litigants. And I don't know what the answer to that is going to be, but the fact that that discussion just simply isn't even happening yet kind of blows my mind. Frankly, it blows my mind as well, although I have certainly seen that in my own experience. Um, and I think you really hit on what is always attention, which is transparency and accountability 
but then also that privacy concern. And, and I completely agree with you. I don't think that cyber and privacy is being discussed enough at the court level. Um, you know, we, you know, I, I sit in Philadelphia, the Philadelphia court systems had their own cyber incident that they were dealing with. Um, and I think it, you, you hit the nail on the head. It's just, we need to start having these conversations instead of just using this technology, there needs to be a thoughtful use of the tools. And maybe this isn't the right tool because the downsides could be, um, could be really detrimental. Um, I'm wondering what are the things the legal community could be doing, or like you said, it's disgusting to help address those gaps. Is it, is it sitting down and starting to have conversations with judges? Is it, um, you know, on behalf of our clients advocating for secure and private-oriented technologies. I think there's a lot of listeners who are in a position to at least be thinking and pushing a narrative. And it'd be helpful to understand from your perspective where that value add could be. I think the the first thing is just to be expecting and demanding more of our justice agencies. There is a lot of data and information there that can be jailbroken, and it just hasn't happened yet. Uh, and I think, I mean, this goes down to law school and law schools need to be teaching uh, upcoming lawyers that they should be expecting data from these institutions. I'm stealing this from a colleague of mine at uh, at Isles at the University of Denver, but he's like, he told me that the chief irony of the justice system is that we expect evidence and information from everybody that comes to the doors as a litigant, but we as like justice agencies don't expect the same of ourselves. Uh, and I think that needs to change. Like we need to be uh, expecting that these agencies are able to tell us what is happening, what is going on. Like, for example, we do not have a sense of national data in regards to how many self-represented litigants there are in civil court every year. We don't know what is happening nationally as far as pretrial release is concerned. We don't know the gender of litigants in courts within the United States. Like, this is some pretty basic user information that any other industry would be ashamed to not be collecting. And, and we need to have it ourselves, not only just for the administration of these agencies, but for lawyers themselves to be better representatives of their clients. If we don't know that there's large broken trends within the pretrial release system in a particular jurisdiction, because there's no data, then we're not fully representing our clients in those situations because we don't know what's going on. I think lawyers are... In, rightly so, it's a part of the job, get lost in the case to case. And to take a step back and think from a systems point of view, exactly what is going on and what that means for your particular clients, I think is a paradigm shift for lawyers and for the way that we teach and bring up lawyers in the United States. But I think it's going to be critical, not only in regards to just evolving our justice systems to being more transparent, open and just, but also to just make us better attorneys. That's so true. I think for so long, I feel that we have not tapped into the data we have to help us be better attorneys. I think that's a really important message along with everything you talked about, Jason, which is that we as attorneys should be embracing data and trying to drive, use the data to our good of our clients and the, and the good of the system. Um, and I, I chuckle a little bit because if you talk to computer science, individuals, engineers, the fact that we don't have this data is very shocking um, because they just they almost assume we have it. And when I go, oh, no, that data does not exist or you have to piecemeal go court by court um, and cull through a lot of manual information to obtain that data, 
um, I think it's shocking to a lot of people outside of the legal system. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, and just uh, the more I, time I spend in uh, this world, the more I just think we have to like burn it down and start over. But obviously that's not an option, uh, but it is uh, absolutely astounding, the lack of information that we have. But I mean, it's not all all bad. I don't want to be all like terminally cynical about this. There's organizations like the University of Michigan, there's the criminal justice uh, administrative record system, which is collecting criminal justice administrative data from around the country uh, and is doing a phenomenal job in regards to making it available for researchers. This isn't the same as making these things open in public uh, for you know journalists or, or for the public in general to access or for even tech developers. Um, but it is a step in the right direction as far as collecting, standardizing, and cleaning that data in a meaningful way. Uh, and similarly, at Georgetown, there's a new project called the Civil Justice Data Commons that's looking to do something similar uh, with civil court data around the United States. So there is there is hope uh, that uh, at least the academy is focusing on uh, these particular issues and, and doing really meaningful work to just dredge out that data that exists already and, and turn it into something useful. Well, I always prefer to end on a hopeful note. Um, and Jason, this has been really fascinating, a really interesting area that you are diving into. Um, I always like to end the podcast with a, the same question for all of my guests, which is, um, what is the most recent book you have read on cyber privacy law technology um, that you would recommend to the listeners? Um, I've spent the last six months reading a ton of science fiction. And so uh, both short story collections by Ted Chang, I would highly recommend uh, anything by Ursula Le Guin or Philip K. Dick. I think uh, as opposed to thinking about what's happening now uh, from the legal perspective, these books have been really helpful in uh, setting what the warning should be for a lot of these projects. Um, I think there's a lot of hope in regards to what these technology projects can do, but they're not going to come without all sorts of societal concerns that we need to be thinking about. And a lot of these books are warnings uh, about how these things can go wrong. Very good recommendations. Um, Jason, for our listeners, if they want to get in touch with you or to sign up for your newsletter, what's the best way to do that? Sure. Uh, you can sign up for the newsletter at justicetech.download. That is the URL, uh, and you can find me there. Uh, as well, I'm on Twitter at jtache. That's a letter J-T-A-S-H-E-A. -A, uh, and I'm usually fairly active on there and will respond pretty quickly. Well, thank you, Jason. This was a fascinating conversation. Really appreciate you coming on the show today. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jordan. Thank you for listening to the ABA Business Law Section's podcast series, To the Extent That. The section offers a robust collection of content. To explore more about this topic, or to learn about joining the section, visit ambar.org bizlaw. That's B-I-Z-L-A-W.